Hello and welcome to the Landmark Theatres Film Club podcast. On today's episode, Sean Baker, the director of Tangerine and the Florida Project, moderates a discussion about We the Animals with director, co-writer Jeremiah Zagar and co-writer Dan Kitroser. This conversation was recorded during the film's opening weekend at the Landmark in Los Angeles. Hello, everybody. Um, thank you for coming out today and supporting this beautiful film and supporting independent film in the theater. It's very important to do that these days, and so thank you very much. Um, <laughs> um, my name is um, Sean Baker. I'm a film director, and um, I am honored to be here today to speak with the, uh, the director and uh, co-writer and the other co-writer of this beautiful film. So let me introduce them right now. Uh, we have director and co-writer Jeremiah Zager. and co-writer Dan Kitroser. Well, first off, I just wanted to know a little bit about the, the, the source material, how, how the book came to you too, and how, um, tell me a bit, little bit about uh, why you felt, you, why you connected with it and wanted to adapt it for the big screen. Um, so I was editing a movie in Egypt um, and uh, it was called The Square, and it was about the revolution there. And you can sit down if you want. No, oh, we got three. We got three seats. This is awesome. Um, thank you very much. And, uh, and um, I, was, I decided that while I was there that I was going to be a revolutionary, and I was going to stay in Egypt and make this movie. Um, and then I came back for Sundance. I had a short at Sundance, and there wasn't enough money to bring me back for Egypt to Egypt. And I was like, oh, well, I guess I'm not a revolutionary. It was a confusing moment in my life. And, um, and I, uh, I was thinking about what mattered to me, what I really care about. And at the time, I was um, uh, just kind of wandering around New York City, and there's a wonderful bookstore called McNally Jackson. Um, and uh, I went to the We Recommend table there, and I picked up this book, and I read the first page, and it like knocked me out. And the first page of the book is, eerily similar to the first page of the movie. It's like almost word for word. Um, it, it just like was everything I wanted. Um, and I read it right there in the cafe and I bought a bunch of copies um, and I gave a copy to Dan. Um, yeah, and actually the, um, the book is actually a novelization of the movie. Um, actually, <laughs> how it turned out now. Um, uh, yeah, that I, I read it. I mean, Jeremiah gave it to me um, just as like a friend giving a, a book to another friend. Um, and b before there was thought of the movie. And, and yeah, and I had the similar experience of just opening it up, falling right into it. I mean, it's, um, it's just luscious prose and imagery and connected to it very deeply, really quickly. And you reached out to Justin Torres? Yeah, I reached out to Justin, and I had made this movie in a dream that was al also about my family, and it was like kind of a brutal, loving, dirty relationship that was very similar to his. And so um, I gave him my movie, and, uh, and I said, let's meet. And um, uh, I was like, I want to make your book into a movie. What do you think? Um, and, uh, and we just started talking, and we liked each other. And actually... You know, we'd mentioned before outside, I, I wanted to make the movie the way you sort of imagined the movie was. I was like, we'll just get a family that's actually a lot like this family, and we'll just get them in a house, and we'll just film them. 
and he was into that idea sort of you know because I was coming at it from a documentary background and he loved that he was like yeah and we, I was like it'll change but it'll be fluid um, it didn't actually end up being that way yeah, but I, just so you know I was out in the lobby and I I told Jeremiah that actually when I first saw this film, it wasn't until the end credits that I realized it wasn't a hybrid film, meaning that I thought that the three, bo the three boys were related. I thought they were brothers. Uh, they're not. <laughs> but we'll get to the casting in a minute. But I really thought you had found a family and just sort of fictionalized their life. That's what I wanted to do. And then, um, and he was psyched on that. He had, he had met with some people in Hollywood who had wanted to... Um, uh, option the book because it was a bestseller and it's so amazing um, and they had weird ideas about it they wanted it to be like he said the pitch was like Breaking Bad meets Malcolm in the Middle and it was going to be a sitcom <laughs> and they just it was awkward it was an awkward I think it was awkward for him and I think so sitting down with somebody that um, understood the book and really you know just wanted to, I really just wanted to make the exact book like I didn't want to change I didn't I didn't think I'd had have to didn't you you I, you mentioned it in one interview where you said this isn't an adaptation it's a translation or, or something yeah. like that that's how you see it yeah I mean I remember yeah I remember reading um, um, Don Quixote and hating it like it was bad and then I read another translation of Don Quixote years later and it was amazing and I was like oh wow translation is an art you know th there's a, there's an art to translate translating text. Um, and um, I think oftentimes um, you can destroy great books by adapting them in a way. You know, it's like, uh, for some reason, as filmmakers, we're always told, like, how, you know, you have to free yourself from the book. Or, like, you know, there's, like, this idea that the author's work is un, um, unadaptable or un untranslatable. But I actually don't think that necessarily. And, and especially in this case, it just seemed like everything we could do to be as close to the text as possible was what we should be doing. And, and that was kind of how we approached it. Did the text have these moments that, how did, how did the animation work in? How did that? So that, that was a different, so that yeah. was a, um, uh, yeah, that, that was like, so one of the things in the text was that it was from Jonah's point of view. Um, and so in the writing process, something Dan and I always talked about was the fact that we weren't going to have um, the kind of wall-to-wall -wall voiceover that was what made Jonah active in the book, right? So how, how are we going to do that became like a main challenge of making the movie. And when we got into the edit, we realized we'd failed. You know, like you weren't connecting with Jonah. Jonah wasn't the protagonist we needed him to be. And you weren't always inside his mind. And so we were constantly trying to figure out ways of getting into his mind. How do you, how do you make him the watcher that is active, you know? And um, we, I, I had an, done animation in, in a dream in order to get into my father's psyche. Who, he's the protagonist of that film. And, um, uh, and this is actually just like a tidbit, but Dan actually, he, he digitized all the footage for that film. He was, he was still in college, I think, at the time. You were, right? Yeah, I lost half of it. Yeah, <laughs> he lost half the footage, that's true. You're still working <laughs> together, yeah, yeah, but. <laughs> He, he, yeah, <laughs> it was, it, but he was, it, it, that film was very personal and Dan is somebody I trust so deeply and that like that, yeah, that's the same kind of experience we had. And so anyway, so with the animation, so um, I had this teacher in um, college named Rob Todd um, and uh, he ran this course called 
uh, I can't remember. Mike, what was it called? Alternative Film Production. And so Mike was taking that class, and um, he, uh, he brought home this unbelievable Czech animation um, that was photocopied. And the beauty of the animation was not only the way the photocopies moved, but the way the paper moved. Like you could see the texture of the paper moving. Um, and that the, the same ethos that we were building the film with in terms of uh, the 16 millimeter that we were shooting and letting the grain really like go big was the same ethos we wanted the animation to have, that it should be tangible and physical. Well, you certainly have achieved that. Thanks. It has that rich texture all the way through. And then jumping to the 16 now, so this is Super 16 or 16? Super 16. And matted for 235? That's right, yeah. Okay, cool. I, I'm just, I like the tech stuff, so sorry about that. Um, yeah, but it, it is gorgeous. It's really, it really is. And your cinematographer, uh, where did your cinem cinematographer come from? So Zach and I shoot a lot of commercials and documentaries together. Um, and... Uh, and we were looking for an aesthetic for the film, and we we had watched um, we had watched a bunch of movies. We watched uh, Mary Ellen Mark Streetwise and um, and the Tin Drum. Volker Schlund of the Tin Drum. Both amazing films. Seek them out; they're hard to find, actually. Oh, at least at least Streetwise. Streetwise is yeah, but it's a mess. I have a DVD if you want. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you know the the beauty of those films is like it gives you. Uh, they feel like, I mean, especially streetwise, feels like this weird fever dream. You know, it's like you're like, it, it was it was really the aesthetic we were trying to achieve. And they also are like, you know, the, she lets the grain just go really big too. And I mean, obviously because it's a documentary. But then, um, you know, the other thing is the colors are incredibly vibrant. So a lot of times when you see, you know, people living in working class worlds, the colors are sudden, like, suddenly incredibly subdued. It's actually interesting in, in your film, the colors are very vibrant too. And it's like, I think that, there's there's something about children where they see the world, at least I did as a kid, as such a vibrant, colorful universe. And we wanted you know to find that kind of technicolor, fever dream, memory feeling that we thought of as like being the 1980s, 1990s. Yeah, you got it. Um, the scene, the star scene, the, the when they're driving and they're looking up at this beautiful, you know, uh, just sky full of stars. Now, obviously, a camera can't capture that. So you did it CGI, I assume. But it, it, what, what is wonderful about it is that that's how, when you go to Big Sky Country and you, you look up at the stars, yes, you can be driving through a, uh, you know, a sodium lamp lit road and still, go up, still look up and see these wonderful stars. How did that come to you? How did you decide on shooting it that way? Because I, I don't think I've ever seen that before. And um, was it in the book, or like, tell me a little bit about that. That scene really got me. So every scene um, in the movie is based on a scene in the book. So like, it's uh, there that scene does take place in the book, but it's like it's sort of like, and we went on this awesome ride, and we shot down the stars. And so when you, you know, the translation of that is visual, right? How do you make that a euphoric experience that might feel like? the kids are really experiencing this moment. And there's a wonderful, um, a Pichapong, I'm gonna wreck this last name, do you know this? It's just as he has, where just calm Joe. So he has a wonderful film called Mobile Men, which you should also seek out, which is essentially, it's just a short film um, documentary and where they grab the camera and they sort of move it around. And we had this idea of sort of, like an homage to mobile men that would then be um, transformed into this euphoric nighttime you know, dream 
experience and where you could feel like, and I think that the key to it was like these, bo in the book, the boys are shooting down the stars and we all do that. Like we all as kids like look up at clouds and you know, find animals and we all like imagine that we can shoot down the stars and like how do you, how do you bring an audience to a place where they can see that? And that wasn't literally possible so we had to figure out a way to do it um, with CGI, you know. And speaking of the kids, um, could you tell me a little bit about working with the children? I, I just made a film with kids, and it was uh, I learned a lot of lessons about working with kids. And, and I actually had an acting coach who helped me out tremendously. Uh, what was your method? We did have an acting coach. Her name was Noelle Gentile, and she was wonderful. Um, but we also had Dan. So Dan, Dan can tell you a little bit about his background, but he's not only a cinematographer. I'll let you... Oh no, you're not a writer, sorry. He's also not a cinematographer. <laughs> I'm not an editor. Um, uh, I'm still stuck on the fact that you read Don Quixote twice. <laughs> well, I, I started the first one, it was terrible. Yeah, 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 no, it's long, it's really long. We, the Animal's only like 100 pages, I didn't know. Anyway, um, yeah, so I, I worked, because uh, I, I uh, worked a lot with kids and I uh, was a children's entertainer and, and, uh, and teacher. and. Um, so I was happy to bring some of that with the kids. It was gr it was wonderful and terrible, um, and I don't recommend uh, having three children um, <laughs> at all. Um, <laughs> in any sort of context or configuration, um, but like a ti a typical day was uh, there was one. Well, there's so many moments that I'm still in therapy for, but um, <laughs> but one one was uh, for for a brief moment um, I I wasn't working with them and uh, and then Jeremy Yakis, our our producer was like Dan you gotta go and you, you gotta go and stop them and they, we were at the house and they had found in the thrushes uh, a very giant rusty saw. And they were pl they were frisbeeing it to one another, <laughs> and I took away the giant rusty saw, and I was like, "Guys, you can't do this." To which Josiah said, "Ah, oh, you never let us do anything." <laughs> and so anyway, um, none none had tetanus during the filming, um, so I feel like great success. And did they have any previous experience? Kids, yeah. The, the young men had no acting experience, um, and we uh, we had this incredible um, intern who became our casting director, um, and she went all over New York City. Um, she saw a thousand young people. Um, who is this? Her name was Marlena Scrobe. Oh, great! And she's the best. And uh, she um, she would see them. I tried to do it at first. I thought like I'll just scout them on the street, and I it, it turns out it's very uncomfortable for very. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I did the same thing. Super weird for young mothers to have like a bearded man asking, <laughs> come to my basement office. Um, but Marlena had this like way about her where like people just felt comfortable immediately. And, um, and so then when the young people were um, coming to callbacks, me and the acting coach, Noel Gentile, would start to work with them and Dan would start to work with them. And so we would all kind of take this tandem familial approach to the process. Um, and we all just kind of, you know, uh, narrowed down this group to smaller and smaller amounts of young people. Um, and then we actually had to postpone a year because we couldn't find Jonah. 
we couldn't find Evan Rosado. The other two we'd found, they were about 200 and 300 in the casting process, but Evan was like late 800s. Wow, they're, they're amazing. Um, okay, well, let's uh, open it up to you guys. Any uh, questions out there? Yes, right over there. So, obviously, sexuality is like a big uh, characteristic of the movie. Could you talk a little about how you approach filming those sorts of scenes with the younger actors? And like how you tried to like either coach them or prepare them to deal with that sort of stuff? Yeah. Um, so Noelle was, because she's a teacher, was pretty amazing um, at walking, the, was and is pretty amazing at walking kids through really intense material. And teachers do that all the time. And I think, you know, the, the, young, the young men in this movie were never, they didn't have to watch pornography. That's editing. And like, you know, they they didn't have to watch their parents in those situations, that's editing, but they did have to know what they were getting involved in, and she was able to walk them through the process and what it was um, and what it meant for to honor the novel, you know, that, that you know, these were experiences that weren't their own, but they were honoring these experiences of Justin and that he put on paper and how important that was, and Justin was on set the whole time also, so I think they felt this incredible need to do honor to, and it was, it's sort of like when you give young people autonomy and you let them know that they're responsible, they sort of rise to the occasion, and, and that was like the case time and time again, um, and so they were willing to do things that I think, you know, in a classroom setting might seem awkward, um, in a film setting it seemed empowering, I think. Yes, right there in the center. Um, hi, were there any improvised scenes or partially improvised moments? Yeah. Uh, one specifically <laughs> is the Crack Delioso moment. I let Dan tell you about that. No, there weren't. It was all written. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, no. We would, I mean, I... <laughs> um, you know, we, the Quack Deliosa moment, we were just, I mean, I, we had to entertain the kids all the time um, in between sets, and so we were just taught different hand slap games. But there, I think there was a looseness also to, um, to the storytelling. You know, within each scene, it was very carefully choreographed, but I think Jeremiah led them in um, such a, um, an earnest, honest way that there was freedom within all of those shots and, uh, and those interactions. In a specific sense, what we would do is we would do the written words and then the boys had such charisma and such imagination that we would let them at the end of every three takes do a uh, improvised take. And sometimes we just use that stuff instead. Do you feel that as a, a documentarian as well, you, because Jeremiah makes documentaries as well, did you bring any of your documentary techniques to the table when it came to directing or covering? Yeah, I mean, we do, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's more of an ethos than like a technical thing that we brought to it. I mean, it was like, when we make documentaries, we're trying to create, I, I call it like a campfire experience, you know, like you're at a campfire and you're sitting there and suddenly like you're willing to talk about stuff that you never talk about before. Um, 
or otherwise. And so it was like, how do we create environments that are as intimate as documentary environments? And that was sort of the ethos of, of the film. And, and, and I think it sort of became the ethos of the, the entire set. Like everybody on set felt like they were in like this weird documentary and everybody became part of the movie making process. Like the whole crew were the parents to these kids in a way, you know, and everybody was involved in um, in watching the birth of this movie happen, and so it was almost like you were just recording the birth of a movie, um, in the sense of its level of intimacy. How big was your crew, if you don't mind me asking? Forty-four. Yeah. It was pretty. Hefty. It, it was hefty, and it, when it would shrink, so it could expand and contract. So if we were doing some of those sexually explicit scenes, the crew would shrink. We would shrink the crew down, and everybody would go outside and take naps, and we would do work inside. And you mentioned outside that you uh, worked with the children for quite a long time, right? Yeah, so the, the two boys we worked with for, um, Isaiah and Josiah, we worked with for a year and a half, and Evan we worked with for six months on top of that. And, and when you say worked with it, these were workshops, or how did that, so how did it play out? Yeah, sort of, th so the way we would do it is we would get them every weekend to come to like a park or to our office, and then we would do scenarios that were just like scenarios that were in the movie, but we wouldn't do it with the script. So they were exactly what the scene was, but we wouldn't do it. Or um, there's a little, there's a beautiful, I think, behind the scenes documentary that'll coming out co come out soon where Dan taught Evan how to scream because Evan had never enunciated before, like loudly. He was a he's a very quiet young man, M and maybe. Yeah, we just um, we were trying to get him to s to scream. I'm sure his mom is really thankful that we taught him that skill. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, we wound up just do, just slowly going through different, um, animal sounds and like running around the park. And so, you know, started a snake, moved to a dog and then ended a lion. And it was really cool to see him, you know, expand over, over that hour. It was really awesome. And then, yeah, then he just kept screaming. Did you have any, uh problems with sugar on set? Oh my <laughs> God. Because we did. Oh my God, so much, because you want to placate them. And then, so that we just we just drugged the hell out of the children with the sugar, and then and then there was a Benadryl crash that would end up happening because one of them kept having an allergic reaction. So yeah, it was almost like, you know, the old studio system and they were Judy Garland. I mean, I just... <laughs> I hope it all turns out all right. We, we, after our... Fourth day, we 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 switched out. We swapped everything out for sugar-free without telling them. But the next morning, for some of them, yeah, it wasn't. Oh no! Don't don't you know? Don't eat a whole bag of uh, sugar-free gummy bears. It's not going to be good for your stomach. So we wanted. I forget who, but it was like they uh, they kept. They had somehow decided. Th these things were granola bars. They were Captain Crunch, like sugar-infested demons. But they're like, I need more granola bars, and uh, you know, I didn't. I just kept. I was like, Shush, please be, please be nice to me. Um, I'm just a sad gay writer. Just <laughs> here's, here's your sugar. <laughs> how, how did you two meet? Uh, so uh, we met because I'm surprised that you don't know about the 1997 production of Lost in Yonkers at Akiba Hebrew Academy right outside of Philadelphia. Sorry. You guys, because Jeremiah directed and I was, I was Jay Kernitz and my, my brother played my uncle. <laughs> More questions about that production. 
Where, 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 where was that not in your materials? You've been, you've been working together ever since. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. We. Dan, I mean, Dan. Dan was. Uh, he's wonderful in that play, but he was. Uh, he also. He, he also moved to New York City and um, is just a very close friend and um, and we've been talking about working together for a while actually and he he had. Um, as you can see, Dan is very funny, but he also um, is incredibly um, non-judgmental and open. And it's a it's a hard thing to find in a partner who you know he, somebody who's as sweet as Dan. And so when we made in a dream, it was dealing with very intense familial stuff. Dan was my go-to, and so anytime I'm you know dealing with intense stuff, Dan's Dan's a wonderful a wonderful collaborator because he um, he's a wonderful man. It's also really nice that... And he's talented. Very talented. It's also really nice that Dan's on set. That's a rarity, you know? I have my co-writers on set because I feel as if, like, why not? They can, they can, you're there if you're, if you're making, if you're finding the film sometimes, it's great to have your collaborator there to, to share ideas with, to bounce ideas off of, but um, it's a rarity because sometimes producers don't want the writer around. They, 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 Ban yeah. them from the set almost. Well, I think that's a testament to our producers and also to Cinereach. Mm. I think it's like they they were they were down with with um, as people being as involved as possible, which I think is a rarity and also is a shame. Mm -hmm. It's like and we, it was it was a family and nobody was getting paid anything, so it was like let's all just do this together. Let's right. all just you know be together and and then it was valuable because you know when you have to cut days or you have to change scenes, Dan's. Dan was down, and if you have to take care of the young men, Dan was, Dan was down, and he and he took a lot of abuse, and he w and, uh, and that's you know, uh, it's moving. For, it was moving for me. It was like he was there, and his husband to now came up and stayed with us, and it was like it really just yeah, everybody just kind of pitched in where they could. That's great, and it's great to hear about Cinereach. They're a uh, wonderful nonprofit based in New York that uh, helps. Indies like this get off the ground, and sometimes they fully finance. Did they fully? They finance? fully finance this film. That's yeah. wonderful. So they, they've only fully financed a few films now: Beach yeah. Rats, your film, maybe one or two others. Beasts and Beasts of Southern Wild. They did Beasts completely. They did Beasts completely. Oh. They did Beach Rats. They did ours, and they have a movie um, about MIA that mm. they fully finance that's coming out later this summer, September twenty mm. eighth. Yeah. Look into them. They're they're extremely filmmaker friendly. They're always about what the you know whatever makes the best film. So it's 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 really supporting the filmmakers process and and not wanting to interfere, but just support all the way. They're wonderful. They're they've helped me twice. Um, any other questions out there? Uh, yes, Miss. Um, I was just wondering. So obviously, like childhood sexuality and like that was definitely yeah yeah I mean not childhood everybody's mental illness I think mental illness in general I mean we mental illness is a funny way to put it specifically but um, but mania like and um, you know th this is a family that lives in extremes and uh, Dan and I both come from families that live in extremes and um, you know sometimes have been institutionalized in the book there's a scene of institutionalization that we couldn't put in the movie really because of the age disparity but um, yeah I mean and, and again like I think 
I've been thinking about this a lot recently, actually, because I mentioned our, our teacher, Rob Todd. He just walked into the woods this weekend and committed suicide. And I think that uh, I think that I was thinking about why people asked me, people have been asking me, people have been like, you know, why is this movie important or why is it political or, you know, why does it matter? Why should people see it? And I think, um, and because it's not a giant, you know, movie about, uh, you know, politics or, um, you know, changing the world or climate change or all the things that are crushing in on us. Um, and I think um, what it is about is it's about sharing moments um, that aren't ever really shared. And I think when I read the book, I was like, that reminds me of my family and feeling connection to other people who experience mania or who experience you know, passion in a way that is frightening helps you understand your own passions and your own fears and your own insanities. Um, and, um, and that in some ways is, you know, is as important, you know, more important to me. Yeah. Right there, yes. Um, I'm wondering, did, how did Noel translate your adjustments? Or did you do your adjustments directly to the young men? Yeah, yeah, I would, I, I, I mean, we, yes. I would give them, to, the, you mean, to, like, tell, the, tell them what to do? Yeah, 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 I would just tell them what to do. But, but, um, but what Noelle did is she put them, the way it worked sort of is Noelle would put them in a frame of mind where they were focused. Dan had more trouble with that, but Noelle was able to put them in a frame of mind. He was still a great man. Though. He is a great man. <laughs> She, she was able to, because that's her, she knows, she understood how to like calm them down and get them to a place. And then so did Raul and Sheila. Like the amazing thing about working, and I wonder if you had the same experience, like the kids when they watched Raul and Sheila and watched them deal with how they would prepare, they would sort of want to do that. Like, you, um, uh, yeah, to a certain degree, um, especially Brooklyn. You know, because she's uh, Brooklyn Prince, who was the lead of my film. She she's such a uh, professional. She she's this is what she wants to do in life. So she's constantly, you know, she was the one who was really just studying the way that these actors were working, and uh, because she wants to do this for the rest of her life. The other two were just not as not as closely completely connected. focused. Yeah. And I, I think you know the the thing about them being brothers made them all want to do whatever the other one was doing and better. They were like, I can, I can listen to my headphones and get ready for this part better. And like, so they would all go into like their corners and they would put on their headphones by the end of the thing and they would listen and they would get ready. It was funny, in the beginning, they were throwing saws and by the end, they were like, really like kind of trying to be Raul and Sheila, like watching how, yeah, I think the first time they saw like Sheila smack Raul in the face in real life, like it wasn't, it wasn't a stunt, you know, or like, the way they watched Raul or Sheila cry on cue, and they were just like, "How do you do that?" And like they were, like they, their minds started churning and and being able to actually do it, which was amazing. I think some of our adults were looking at Brooklyn <laughs> to, to to emulate her. Uh, any others? Right over there. Yeah, more technical question, um, specifically about the improvisational like approach that you described, and this kind of goes to what Sean was asking earlier about. Um, you know, shooting on film, you know, so you're, you're limited by your roles. And, and can you talk about that choice to, to shoot on film and not having the luxury of doing, like, longer takes? Yeah, maybe you could speak to this, too. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, for us, shooting on film was liberating because 
um, first of all, the kids have a short shelf life no matter what. Like they could do, our kids could do no more than three takes, three or four takes, and then they were done. So the, impro the improvising was helpful because it got them revitalized and it, it made them get excited again about doing the scene. And it, it, it let them know that, you know, the camera could kind of go on them at any time. And so they were, you know, more fluid and then they would get back to the text. Um, and, you know, so we never, we never spent more than our allotted film for the day just because everybody was so focused on making sure that they were gonna get it right. Whereas I think with digital, when I shoot digital at least, I ha the, there's less of that focus because there's, you know, more potential to do it over and over again. And it's just like, it's more, yeah. Yeah, what he said. <laughs> no, but um, yeah, no, there's that discipline that people talk about that comes to the set when you're shooting on film that you can basically apply to the kids if you'd like, you know, and that's what we did. I mean, there was like, I think we were about a week in and, and when you got the three kids together, I'm talking about Florida Project, when, they, when the three kids were sort of, uh, uh, maybe getting out of hand a little bit or, or getting rowdy. One time I said, hey guys, you hear that sound? The sound of the, that's the film going through the gate. That's my money burning. So, <laughs> <laughs> so keep fooling around, you're burning my money. And I remember them looking at me like, really? I was like, well not, not, you know, not really, but yeah. But uh, that actually got them very focused, very focused. So that's one aspect to it. And also I think, you know, uh, I think it's a myth that actually, you know, yes, you can shoot more digital, you can sh maybe shoot all day with digital, but when it comes down to it, with films like this, and uh, you know, there's, there, there's a control that you need, and there's only certain, so many takes you're gonna do anyway. And, uh, and the costs, really not big, that big of a difference. Really, you know, I think that uh, it's really great that you guys shot on film. It looks gorgeous. I don't think this would have looked, it wouldn't have looked this way on digital. And so I think that you made the right choice and it's a great time to support film. It's very important, you know? We, uh, as I always say, you know, the, the threat of the, the death of celluloid is a real thing right now unless filmmakers like us support Kodak and keep the labs open and keep uh, this wonderful medium alive, so, yeah. 100% with that. We have to call it. Okay, uh, one more question? No? One more question? Yes, sir. Right there. Um, so I was wondering about some of the more dreamlike sequences in the film, the, the underwater stuff as well as the flying. Was that in the book? And what does that sort of represent for Jonah? It is in the book. It's, again, um, it's like a heightened visual um, motif in the movie. So there, there's a lot of underwater in the book. Um, there, uh, but, um, but it's heightened in the film. Um, and there's flying in the book, but it's heightened in the film. Um, so I could literally, like I could go through each scene and tell you how, but, um, but just, you know, as one example, in the book, um, the protagonist who's unnamed in the book is, um, is 17 or around there when he has a sexual experience in the back of a bus with a man that triggers um, his parents finding his journal. And we knew that we couldn't do that. Um, we didn't want to age Jonah, um, and you know that kind of sexual experience means a lot different thing for a 17-year-old than it does for an 11-year-old. And so one of the things Dan and I 
you know, the biggest change that we worked on was creating a character that would be Jonah's love interest that he could have an experience with and what that experience would be and how it would become a magical moment. It's a very magical moment in the book and, and we were focused on creating a moment that, um, that felt like euphoria and also felt like terror at the same time. Um, and the book does this wonderful thing, which I think is, um, it's just, I think it's, it's sort of the most important theme for me, which is that, um, which is actually a lot like making a movie, is that you're, you're, um, the difference between drowning and flying is very, very small. It's like a very thin difference. Um, and, uh, and when you make a movie, you feel like that. You're like, my life, I, this film will either bury me or, you know, or it will fly. And like, that's, that's what this young boy, he's, he's dealing with that kind of intensity day to day. And he's like, either I'm going to drown or I'm going to fly. And that's sort of the, sort of the, yeah, thematic, visual thematic. Cool. Very nice. Well, thank you, everybody, for coming out. Thank you, Landmark. Thank you, The Orchard. And um, please spread the word about this beautiful film. Tell your friends to see it on the big screen. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Landmark Theatre's Film Club podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to hear the Q&As with talent from new independent films opening at the Landmark. You can also check out our YouTube channel for videos of these Q&As and more exclusive content. See you next time.